the doors uh, into the partnership into the senior management levels of the firm were uh, were not uh, open at all, except in some you know some rare instances. So it was a learning curve. This thing called segregation, this thing called racism, this thing called opportunity for black lawyers was a very slowly evolving opportunity in in those years. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry, and occasionally we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We'll share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. I'm going to turn it over to my partner, John Greenblatt. Thank you, Brian. This February, our series will be focusing on lawyers and their histories as part of Black History Month. We will be talking to prominent black lawyers about the opportunities available to them, the path they pursued to success, and the observations they would share for young lawyers today. It's our hope that through their personal histories, others will learn about the general history of black lawyers of their generations. Today, we are extremely honored to be talking to David Baker Lewis. David Lewis served as chairman and chief executive officer of Lewis & Mundy, from 1972 to 1982 and 2004 to 2010. With more than four decades of experience in municipal finance, David is widely respected as an expert in municipal bonds, including revenue bonds, cash flow borrowings, bond purchase agreements, and related types of instruments. As co-founder of Lewis & Monday, David is a visionary who led the firm to become the first minority-owned law firm listed in the Bond Buyers Directory of Municipal Bond Dealers, the Red Book. David was born in Detroit in 1944, went to Oakland University, graduated with a BA from that university, and then got his MBA degree in finance from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And then he enrolled at the University of Michigan Law School, earning his JD degree from there in 1970. David worked as a law clerk for the Honorable Theodore Levin of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan. And in 1972, as mentioned, David, along with two other black lawyers, formed Lewis, White, and Clay, now Lewis and Monday. He's also a board member of various prominent corporations and nonprofits. This episode of The Law in Black and White is being brought to you through the generosity of the law firm Sherman & Sterling, LLP. David, thank you so much for being with us today. We're delighted for you to talk to us. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm uh, delighted to be part of the Legal Innovators podcast. Thank you. Let's just start from the beginning of your career. You, You obtained your MBA in finance from the University of Chicago. So why did you choose to go to law school after that and pursue a legal degree? Well, I decided on uh, an MBA at the uh, University of Chicago to prove my mettle for admission to law school, because I had applied to Michigan Law in 1965, but was not admitted. So I figured that um, 
I did the MBA at a school like the University of Chicago. That would uh, prove I had the right stuff. <laughs> what did you attribute not being admitted back in 1965 to? Probably uh, unimpressive college grades. Went to a small liberal arts college in Michigan. Was um, relatively young at that time. Actually started in the late 50s and early 60s. It was a branch of Michigan State University in Oakland County, Michigan. So I think that's probably one factor. I'm not certain what the other factors are, but I was not an outstanding student there, although I had a good time uh, going to Oakland University. It was the right size for me. And uh, by the time I graduated, I was uh, given an award as the outstanding male uh, student for my class. Did you, uh, it sounds like you knew you wanted to go to law school and wanted to pursue a legal career, and you were using the MBA as a way to get there. How did you determine that early in your life? Uh, was there something in your family background that oriented you towards law? Yes, there was. Um, my mother's father, my grandfather, was a lawyer, graduated from University of Michigan Law in 1902. And I had two uncles or two brothers. She was one of nine, but um, there were two brothers who went on to law school, one who graduated 1935 and um, the other in 1952. And when I was seven or eight years old, I had written my grandfather a letter for Christmas, and um, he wrote back with a two-page letter in his own handwriting, sort of charting my uh, future, saying that I should major in business as an undergraduate, go to law school at the University of Michigan, and then um, come to Bay City, Michigan, where he had his law practice, and I would be automatically admitted into the firm. So I made good on most of that, but I didn't quite make it to Bay City. <laughs> right. He took a slightly different path. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, I know you wanted to ask the question to David. <laughs> no, it's good to have a job offer waiting. I guess, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Like you, um, I don't know if you would consider yourself an exception or not, like having family that was already, at that time already had gone through the law. I, I wonder if this is something you ever talked to your grandfather about or if you thought about on your own. And that was... Um, maybe you could reflect on if you knew how diverse Michigan was at that time. And given the diversity or lack of diversity, as the case may be, did you think like a lot of lawyers at the time about, uh, say, Howard Law or, or, or one of the programs like that? Right. Um, so uh, Michigan had a reputation for being a, a difficult law school to get into, but it also had a reputation of accepting Black students. So from time to time, there would be a Black student admitted. So there were often aspiring individuals from various parts of the country who came or applied to Michigan to go to law school because they knew they had a better chance to get into a quality law school by applying there. In my instance, there were approximately 10 Black students in my law school class, 330. I did not consider really any other law schools because I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my grandfather and uncles. My dad was an independent insurance agent, so I also had his business goals and objectives uh, in mind um, at the time, but um, took off on the law school path as uh, something that I wanted to try. Gave myself one year to determine whether I really like law school or not because of my business um, education at UC, an opportunity to work at the Northern Trust Company as a business school student during the summer, and Morgan Guarantee Trust Company in New York 
the summer uh, after I graduated from law school. Uh, both made me uh, full-time offers, but I decided to never be happy unless I gave uh, um, law a try for a year. So I, I, I'd love to go through with you what was going on in the era in which you went to law school in a minute, but I'm fascinated by, to the extent you remember or have a sense of it, what it was like for your grandfather to start practicing law, which was two generations earlier than you. He must have gone to law school, presumably, in the early 1900s, or when, when would he have graduated? What was it like for a, a black lawyer at that time to go to law school and, and develop a career? Well, fortunately for him, um, he had a fairly easy um, entry into the practice. His father, who was a free black who had participated in the Civil War, originally from Virginia, relocated to Michigan after the Civil War, and had established himself as a businessman in Bay City, and was relatively well-known, was part of the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, which was established after the Emancipation Proclamation to sort of usher in the um, entry of, of African-Americans into full citizenship. So my grandfather was fairly well known in his community. He had a personal tragedy where one uh, leg was cut off in a railroad accident when he was seven years old, but he survived that, um, went on to uh, Michigan Law School, actually got a job with the lieutenant governor of the state, who happened to be from the Bay City area, graduated from law school, and then he came to Bay City, Michigan, worked with a white lawyer there who opened his practice to my grandfather. Then uh, my grandfather started his own firm, and his clientele were primarily white. And then his sons joined um, later on. So he had um, you know, fairly easy way to go. Black population in Bay City at the time was in the low single digits. Mm. That's a very interesting story. Um, uh, let, me, let me switch gears now. You were in law school, if I'm not mistaken, in 1968, right? Because you graduated in 1970. So you must have been there when Dr. King was assassinated and the country was going through the civil rights uh, movement. What was it like to be in law school at that time? Well, uh, it was um, exhilarating in some respects, depressing um, in others um, as the civil rights movement played out. The assassinations of Dr. King and others, uh, really uh, sort of a low point. But the exhilaration of the movement itself uh, was very evident. And so it was great to be in law school at that point in time. There was uh, really an emphasis on the opportunity of law to shape the future direction of American society. And um, of course, the stage was set through law by the Supreme Court decision in 1954, Brown versus Board. It took several years before the principles of Brown versus Board evolved into the civil rights movements of the 1960s, but law was seen as a pathway to um, change social conditions, and uh, that was a good feeling uh, to have at that point in time. So um, really enjoyed the opportunity to go to law school and enjoyed the intellectual challenge that helped to set the foundation for my future career. 
interesting. I yeah, I'd I'd love to hear how you thought about that. Right, there were uh, a lot of lawyers at the time, obviously doing civil rights litigation, you know, voter registration, etc. You you obviously had an MBA, and uh, it I know you put that together. Did you think about going into one of what we call big law now, like one of the traditional white shoe law firms, New York, you know, DC, California, wherever? And wh- what was that process like? Was that was that something that was open, or you know, kind of walk us through your journey and and how you um, landed uh, where where you chose to start your career? So um, actually, I was oriented more toward big corporations. Um, thinking about large law firms as I was approaching graduation from law school. And actually, uh, as I mentioned before, I had the summer jobs at uh, Morgan Guarantee and Northern Trust, very interested in finance. And also, uh, while I was in law school, I clerked for uh, Michigan's largest law firm, uh, had an offer to return there. The social unrest and the upheaval around the civil rights movement actually had not attracted me to focus on being part of the struggle, if you will. I was looking forward to attend the law law firm Miller Canfield as an associate, uh, entering associate with the class of 1970. Although my uh, father-in-law had encouraged me to seek out a law clerkship, which I did with um, Judge Levin, as, as Jonathan mentioned. When I was about to make the transition back to the law firm from which I had an offer, I was advised that I would not get credit with my class of 1970. Hmm. Uh, If I uh, joined the law firm, I'd be a year behind my classmates. That got me to thinking, and I decided to um, instead not take that offer, but uh, join a minority-owned law firm in Detroit at the time Hmm. that was doing a very... um, significant practice in, in civil law. Okay. So I joined that firm and um, that set me on a, uh, really on a different path. I enjoyed that work. I enjoyed being part of sort of the struggle. Um, this particular law firm represented some of the Motown artists and uh, musicians, um, but they had also litigation and corporate practice. So I fit into the corporate practice uh, well. I learned a lot from the uh, partner in the firm who headed up that practice, but eventually uh, left and pursued my own uh, law firm practice. Yeah. Let, let me follow up just super quick. Um, obviously, and, and it, may be, it may feel weird to you because you're sitting here, right? But like to, to be talking to an historic figure, I think it's, it's worthwhile to tease out a little bit of what was happening. You know, Give a little flavor of what was happening at the time. So was there a highlight that you might share? And I wonder, as it related to the big firms, you you had mentioned earlier that Michigan took a lot of blacks. Were blacks that wanted to go into some of the bigger law firms, were they having a hard time at that at that point? Or what, what was the atmosphere like? Well, from Michigan law, there were not, there's not a large number. So they were onesies, twosies, threesies by class. But um, because of the Michigan law education, those law graduates uh, had opportunities to join firms. But it was very difficult um, back in the um, 50s and 60s for black lawyers to earn a position in a Michigan big law firm. There, There are numerous stories of black lawyers who had 
graduated from Yale, from Harvard, who, when presenting their credentials to entering class position at some of the Michigan big law firms, uh, were denied even opportunities for an interview because uh, it was strictly segregated back in those days. So it was a very difficult environment. Most of the African-American lawyers who graduated from law school, there was not a vast number of them, but particularly um, were focused on small firms in what I call the personal lines practice, you know, real estate, leases, criminal law, small business entities, and things of that nature. So right at the beginning of the 70s, right after the civil rights movement of the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act, which included uh, not only public accommodations, but those legal barriers that had existed by way of practice, by segregation in the North as well as the South, uh, began to open. So um, there were plenty of people who were in my position who did not see, because of the fervor of the civil rights movement, any barrier to uh, joining big law Michigan or big law New York or big law wherever. And there was a growing consciousness among some of the partners in those firms that more equal opportunity for lawyers of color should be offered. So it was, it was a difficult time, much different from what we have today, where I think there is substantial integration in the uh, law practice much more than there was 40, 50 years ago, although there's still some very um, rare, there's rarefied air in terms of African-Americans getting into the uh, partnership level and um, to leadership uh, positions within the law firms. I was going to actually follow up on that, David. It sounds like the door was opening in that era to get into the law firms. But what was the per- what was the reality and what was the perception of young black lawyers as to whether that was the right career path for them because they could make partner or end up getting advanced through the firm? Yeah, so Jonathan, I think um, during the seventies there was a great deal of uh, hope uh, and aspiration that these uh, doors would be flung wide open and that the opportunities to enter big law and to progress in big law to partnership uh, would be a a genuine opportunity that could be fulfilled. I also think between the 70s and the 80s, it became clear that the assumptions about progress in big law turned out not to be true. There were no mentors. There were no sponsors. There was not uh, quality assignments, if you will, and no one got into the partner track. Uh, but the most exceptional uh, of, of lawyers among black lawyers and lawyers of color. And so then there was a phenomenon in the 80s and 90s, I think, where you saw quite a few African-American lawyers and others sort of leaving big law with the realization that the, um, the doors uh, into the partnership, into the senior management levels of the firm were, uh, were not uh, open at all except in some, you know, some rare instances. So it was a learning curve, this thing called segregation, this thing called racism, this thing called opportunity for black lawyers 
was a very slowly evolving opportunity in the, in those years. Yeah, I, I wonder when you left to do your path of of pursuing your own business, what was that like? Um, you know, maybe both the the highs and the lows, right? Like, you know, you you got the mantle. Um, there's probably still some challenges there. Yeah. So um, the minority law firm that I mentioned, um, I left 14 months after uh, I joined that firm because I didn't feel I would fulfill my full potential uh, by staying there. The most senior partner was not an easy person to get along with and uh, took exception to me participating in a model UN conference, United Nations conference for uh, high school students, which resulted in my picture being published in the Detroit Legal News um, as part of a contingent that um, was helping this um, conference for high school students one weekend. That was a sign to me that uh, I was not going to be fulfilling my full potential in that environment. So actually, the lowest point was (laughs) I handed in my resignation with 30 days notice, and I got a letter back uh, the next day basically, basically saying, get out by sundown. And so (laughs) I had to uh, make other plans. Fortunately, my dad, who was, as I mentioned, an independent insurance agent, owned a building right next door to his independent insurance agency. And I literally uh, packed my bags, took my belongings, and uh, moved into that building, which actually had been an old two-family flat. So um, my desk was an old kitchen table in the kitchen of that two-family flat uh, with my... uh, law books and other things um, nearby. So that was the lowest point. But within six months or so, two lawyers who had been associated with me at the law firm that I left, we started talking, we decided we'd start a firm. And we had the benefit of my dad's support. We had the um, two-family flat renovated into a law office. And uh, we hung out our shingle. Um, And then it was a great ride from there forward. So it was a situation where we made a list of potential clients um, when we actually officially opened our practice in November of 1972. In the following months, none of those potential clients actually turned out to be clients, but other good things happened. And um, that gave us uh, a road toward success. Brian, I think the flat may be the uh, early precursor of remote working that we've say, now taken right. to another level. <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're working on our kitchen tables now. I mean, with COVID. <laughs> David, um, you know, your firm obviously became extremely influential and gained all sorts of uh, respect and honors and success. You mentioned mentoring, the importance of mentoring and supporters. What opportunities did you feel it was important for you to provide to black lawyers that were coming behind you, developing their careers, you know, not only in those early years, but throughout? Well, we had a, we had a, um, more of a family sort of approach to the um, practice. Uh, we wanted to uh, engender that kind of culture, you know, yet observing the appropriate lines in different roles. We had organized ourselves as a professional corporation. And uh, that allowed us to, you know, from a corporate perspective, fill respective roles. I was selected as chairman. Um, one of my partner was uh, partners was um, taken on the role of secretary, 
and we um, formed in a really sort of a corporate context with the notion that uh, we would provide opportunities, we would um, hire people, pay them a, a decent wage, decent salary, open our social and uh, political and other contacts to them, try to serve as mentors because our focus was on building the firm. And in order to do that, we wanted to develop them into the uh, sort of lawyers that we thought we were. So um, almost in every instance, um, we had great success with that. We had low turnover, although we did experience uh, over time a number of our uh, attorneys going on to greater opportunities, some with big law, some into the judicial system some in corporate America, but we kept the culture such that we invested in our colleagues, our associates, beyond things that the Bar Association provided. We invited them to social functions where they could make contacts with people who would need legal services. We were philanthropic uh, with our uh, small net income with the local community and get them involved with a variety of activities in the black community, which opened doors for them uh, as we were engaged in the black community uh, in, in Detroit, because there were many, many areas where African-American organizations developed and risen uh, to fill needs that were not being filled otherwise in the black community. I, I wonder, um, you know, Folks, if I if I could pick up on John's last question, um, you know, folks think about legacy a lot, right? And and that may be uh, in addition to still keeping extremely busy as we know you are. Um, you talked about uh, how you treated your associates, and I think that that was good. What other kind of things did you did you do to help them develop as lawyers, as business people? You know, help make sure that they were going to have a, a successful path too. Yeah, so um, we took full advantage, you know, we were very encouraging of our associates to involve themselves in bar activities, local bar, state bar, and uh, all the things that the um, bar organizations had to offer. Did, did you let them do the Model UN program? <laughs> oh, only they, they had graduated from the model UN program. <laughs> I, I was going to say only if their picture got to be in there, right? Or I'm sorry, if David's picture, not theirs, <laughs> right? Right. Um, you know, there were a variety of things we would um, have um, sort of open discussions every couple of weeks about the direction of the firm, the clients. Um, we engaged in discussion with associates about client development activities. This wasn't a one-sided, you know, here's what we have decided in terms of strategy, um, execute on our strategy, uh, be part of the strategy, what are your thoughts? We were open to um, actually having an integrated firm of black and white lawyers, which we did in the early stages, uh, as well as uh, open doors for, for, for women. So what we tried to do is to lean into where we saw the evolution of uh, law practice going. We, we sought to be on the forefront of um, developments in the law practice as opposed to hewing to you know, the older, more staid traditions in, in the practice. Mm -hmm. Hope that answers your question. No, no, I think it very much does. Thank you. So, David, when I was introducing you, I was, I was pointing out the number of uh, corporate boards that you've been involved in nonprofits and corporate boards. And obviously, there's a movement now to have 
much more diversity and integration at the board level. From your own observations and experiences, what would you say about how black board members can influence change in America and corporate America and uh, you know anything that would promote greater equality, diversity, equity? Mm-hmm. I think the, um, the opportunities are significant, Jonathan, because of the unique role that uh, board members play in, in corporate America, whether it's privately held or publicly traded. There's uh, an openness to advice and counsel from board members that can have an impact, uh, significant impact on the direction of uh, any particular company. I think that, um, of course, boards can form coalitions, if you will, to focus on certain progress in the corporate realm. And I speak in terms of coalition because I I think uh, as a single board member may have limited impact on the direction of the company, the cultural uh, way, and particularly in terms of opening doors, because um, the culture of the board may not necessarily be fully supportive of what the African-American director might say. Although it is important uh, and essential for African-Americans who are in the corporate uh, board seat to speak up on issues that affect the African-American community. On the other hand, uh, for most of the privately and publicly held corporations, the welfare of the African-American community is often at the bottom of the agenda, uh, if it's on the agenda at all. Mm-hmm. So those opportunities for African-Americans to have an impact outside of applying the skill sets that they bring to a board that don't have to do with race, the opportunities can be, can be limited. Uh, but they're there, nevertheless. And I think there, there is a um, recognition now coming into 2021, where um, African-American board members are in the, in the spotlight, the movement to having African-Americans be represented on corporate boards has accentuated from where it was the beginning of 2020. Um, I think that's a, um, that's a good development. I think at that particular point in 2020, in the first quarter, if you will, my fear was that the representation of African-Americans would be steady at best and possibly declining. I think that has, has changed a bit because of George Floyd and the consciousness that um, his murder has evoked in the hearts of true Americans. And I think also there's a factor that um, there's a challenge for, for African-American board members in the corporate realm, and that is the, uh, the fact that there are other minorities who are also uh, desirous of being on corporate boards. That's right. So um, the, um, I, saw, I heard a statistic the other day that was um, no news really to anyone, but just sort of hit home that 40 years ago, 90% of the American population was white and voting in national elections. In um, 2010, uh, that percentage was down to to 59%. The difference is made up not only of African Americans, but Hispanics, Asians, and other minorities who are seeking their own uh, part of the American dream. So um, that puts uh, an emphasis on diversity across the board, 
but also puts a spotlight on the fact that uh, there's a different uh, playing field now for African-Americans than there were 40, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, wow. Thank, thanks for all that. And, and we're, we're sort of uh, um, getting to the end of our time. I feel like we could talk to you for another you know, couple of hours. I'm, I'm sure your wife would uh, want you to come to dinner or something, but uh, I, I will ask just one more question and, and, uh, and, and give John the, the, uh, the honors of the last question. Um, mine, David, is a question that we talked about a little bit in the, in the prep. And I mentioned to you Professor Eddie Glaude from uh, Princeton and talked about him writing a book that talked about Baldwin's America and says, what were the lessons from Baldwin's America to today? So I'm not going to ask you about uh, Professor Glaude's work, but just by, by way of analogy, I, I think that the one thing overwhelmingly that, that strikes me is just how genteel and like what a gentleman you are under the, under the you know, like this is the way you come across. And I think historically knowing some of the stuff that happened during those times and some of the battles that you must have had to face. And I think that the, the generation now is still asking this question, how did you keep from it eating you up? I mean, Baldwin's right. His, his quote talking about to be black in America is to be in a constant state of rage. So one, how did you uh, stop that from consuming you? And if there is a lesson from your America and your law practice for today, what would that be? Well, that's a good, great question um, because my present frame of mind on, on issues affecting my race have changed um, markedly from where I was when I was coming out of uh, law school. So I attribute my orientation back then and my demeanor really to be a function of how I grew up, my expectations that my mother and father had for me and their their individual personas, uh, which were oriented more toward being uh, genteel than being outraged. Over time, I learned more about the ways in which um, American society had failed to live up to its noble objectives, the most noble of which were embodied in maybe the first civil rights movement of the 1860s. and. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, and how consistently since then there's been a denial of equal opportunities, an actual focus uh, on um, non-compliance with the lofty goals of the um, uh, civil rights amendments to the Constitution, which are issues today. So uh, my orientation actually, I guess, uh, is one that has moved from being a more genteel because of the circumstances in which I grew up, integrated high school, integrated junior high, open society, not having to confront some of the, um, the atrocities that uh, beset Black people during the Reconstruction period, during Jim Crow, into the era, era of segregation. Although I've certainly have run into fellow African-Americans who grew up in a different context, who had much more rage than I, but all the time sort of keeping an eye on the, the progress that has been made and being an optimistic and hopeful person, looking forward to the future and focusing on the things that uh, have changed and uh, can 
can be made to change through using the skills and resources that are, are available. I look forward in uh, to reading Professor Glaude's uh, book, though my reading um, yeah. stack is growing. I right. just uh, added to it the 400 Souls. That was a, a compilation of 400 years in the U.S. for African peoples um, put together by um, Ibram uh, X. Kendi in five-year segments. And, and also just a continued ed- education on my part of our, our African-American history, which there is more and more to consume as the numbers of um, professors and um, academics research and unearth this history that has been um, covered up or ignored for so many decades. I think, David, that's a, an excellent segue into the, into the last question. But, you know, Legal Innovators, our objective is to help develop the careers of young Black lawyers, amongst other things that we are trying to accomplish. And listening to what you just said, I'd be very interested if you could share any thoughts you have for young Black lawyers today in terms of the development of their career or their participation in social issues or anything you'd care to speak to? Sure, Jonathan. Um, please, as you ask the question, um, although I'll be first to qualify my observations with the, the fact that um, there are certainly others who have different uh, points of view, but um, at base and at foundation of my observations would be to pursue your dreams. And in the context of someone who's been to law school, the opportunity to dream is um, larger than it ever has been and figure out what it is that most appeals to you and your dream state and follow through on, on that. A law degree is a ticket to just about any goal that you might want to pursue. It's one of the fabulous things about a legal education in a capitalistic society. It can be used in so many different ways. I would say don't be afraid to, to follow your heart as opposed to your head in some instances, because uh, if you focus on what, what you love to do, whether in the legal practice or not, it appears to me that gratification at the end of the career road is more likely than not. Um, legal training will always serve a lawyer well, so stay tuned to the developments in the profession and take a part in the struggle for racial equality, no matter where you are, whatever circumstances you might find yourself in, because we have, uh, as far as racial equality is concerned, and maybe equality in other forms as well, we as a people of the United States have a very long way to go. So those would be the key things that I would focus on. Those are uh, important words. Uh, We're so grateful that you shared your wisdom and your story and your clear success and intelligence with our audience. We're honored that you were willing to do this with us. So David, before we let you go, we're gonna rope you into my favorite segment of the program. Uh, and that's our weekly pet peeve segment. So hopefully you've been marinating on this and you have a burning pet peeve to share with us. Um, I do. So. Um, my Hold first on. wife, who was a lawyer, was um, a grammarian to the highest degree. So I really focus in on correct grammar and uh, execution of the English language. 
and, and can have a pet peeve in terms of usage. Sometimes when the one word is not um, really true to the appropriate meaning in the context. So uh, grammar would be my pet peeve. And I, I can't think of an example right at the moment, uh, but I do have that, uh, that focus. It's a good thing you don't work with us, David, because <laughs> we'd be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. John, do you have one? Or? Uh, well, my, I have a pet peeve. It's, I don't have that many, as you know, but one that is beginning <laughs> to wear on me is websites that, uh, that don't work. So, uh, mm. for example, uh-huh. there's a, a, a way to get a vaccination in D.C. that requires you to hunt and peck until you find an opening rather than uh, telling you what is available. And it's the same thing that stores were doing at the at the beginning of the uh, pandemic. If you remember, you would go on, you put your whole order in. It'd be you know you check off your entire week shopping, and then you'd get back something that said, "Well, we have the lettuce and we have the carrots, and that's it." And <laughs> and you can come back in a couple of weeks and see whether we have the other things. It's like, well, why'd you make me do that if all you had was the lettuce and the carrots? And <laughs> It's the same thing with getting a vaccination in D.C. So that is my one pet peeve. All right. Well, I will close this out with a, with a political pet peeve. As much as I like politics and consuming content and reading and listening to the shows, we had a two-year period, at least a year period, where I got uh, emails from and text, for, as we all did, from candidates more than anybody that I've ever dated. Um, asking me every day, hey, could you just help me one more time? We're almost at the goal. And I'm like, all right, you won, you're at the goal. And now from the new DNC chair, from these people, like, let's get started on the right foot. Like, can I refill the bank account and then contribute some more? So this is uh, this is my uh, pet peeve for today. Although very happy that uh, President Biden has taken office. <laughs> understand both of those pet peeves actually yeah been there done that that's right just to remind our listeners if you have a pet peeve you'd like to share please send us a tweet and we'll try to incorporate it in a future episode we've been talking to um david baker lewis today and oh and right before we go out i'm gonna i'm gonna just uh, come in david i wanted to say um you know, personally, right? And and as a uh, black man that's at the middle part of my career, um, we get so lost sometimes in some of these, um, as you say, the space between what the Constitution is and how it's applied. I appreciate the note of optimism and hopefulness that you've uh, uh, that you've given our audience here, and I think they're going to enjoy it too. I'll, I'll let John do the outro, but I wanted to just add a personal note uh, note to that. Yeah, I don't think there's any outro to do, but <laughs> thank you, David. No. You've been fantastic. We we uh, we appreciate your time with us. It's been fantastic, and and uh, we'll be in touch as we seek wisdom and guidance going forward with our business. Well, thank you so yeah. for, so much to uh, participate for participating in this podcast, and uh, it was an honor to be with you. Brian, I mean, that was obviously uh, fascinating to listen to and, and uh, in many ways moving. The, uh, the thing that I found most interesting and didn't expect was that David was able to take the 
history of uh, lawyers, at least in the state of Michigan, back to his grandfather's generation. So if he graduated law school in 1970, his grandfather must have you know, graduated law school somewhere in the 20s, probably. And yeah. that spans most of the century. So it's really, it was really interesting to get all that perspective from him. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess I just would pick up right where you left off. I guess I was a, a little bit um, pleasantly surprised uh, at the letter that he got from his grandfather kind of uh, scripting out like, hey, this is where you, where you should go, right? Like it's, I think folks and myself included, which is why I think it's really important we're doing this, we're doing this history, this history tribute, you know, kind of think, God, that was like such a tough time and people were just getting going. And it was a tough time for lots of people. And some, uh, lots of people were, you know, first time lawyers, but we have a section of people that, you know, had, had that path laid out, I think, and I've shared this with you, John, actually, we just talked about it last night, this concept of education being the great equalizer and hearing that in the, in the, in the black community. Um, and, you know, sort of working twice as hard and, and putting that out there. I, but I, I think the thing that was most meaningful for me was, was his response to my last question, which is even for my friends, as I talk to at this current day, and then folks that are just starting out, so obviously, um, you know, quite a bit younger uh, than me, there still comes some anger uh, from this lack of fidelity sometimes to the Constitution. And I appreciated hearing how he and, and his parents instilled in him this attitude to be able to deal with what's going on uh, in America, and then using his law degree to find that hope and that optimism um, and, and to share it. I mean, to me, that's, that's the lesson for right now. It's, yes, we, we're frustrated about some things, but we've made progress. We've got a ways to go, but we've also got more tools than we ever have uh, to try to make that progress. And I thought that that was uh, helpful. It was interesting to hear his uh, perspective on the arc because he, he spoke of being very optimistic when he came out of law school in the early 70s, that with the civil rights movement, the career opportunities for black lawyers was going to be unlimited. Um, and then finding that that dream was shut down in the 80s and 90s for many of the people who came out of law school, not because the law firms weren't willing to hire people, but because they weren't promoting and advancing them. Right. And here we are, you know, 30 years afterwards, suffering the aftermaths of that in the legal profession. And then he saw the possibility of the current movement that's been sparked by George Floyd's murder as another opportunity to, you know, seize the mantle and make some change which is sort of where he was in the 70s. So uh, let's, let's hope we can make more sustained progress this time. Well, yeah, and I, and I, I know that we have, we have two more uh, in this series coming up, questions that I'll have for, you know, for Paulette and, and for Sharon. When we get to talk to them, I mean, two black women uh, who did make partner, right, is what, what he said, just to pick up your point, uh, on your point, where he said, God, um, the 70s uh, were filled with these civil rights hopes, and we thought the doors would fling open. And you certainly did have an influx of black partners. But to your point, and, and I just kind of wrote it right next to each other with Sharon's and Paulette's names next to it, that I think the thought was that there would be uh, a lot more integration, there'd be a lot more leadership positions. And you know, being able to explore both the strides that we've made and, and those folks that have made it up to, as, as he called, rarefied air, 
Uh, and then what's the roadmap? Because I think as we paint this, it's great to get the historic perspective, understand the factors that are going on. And if there's a hopefulness, what are some tangible steps that we could bring to the market, um, you know, a part of our business model and separate that we could do to advance this conversation, maybe with others around the table? Agreed. So thank you again to our guest, David Baker Lewis, for joining us today. Thank you also to our sponsor, Sherman & Sterling LLP. Sherman & Sterling is a global elite law firm committed to bringing together diverse cultures, ethnicities, and backgrounds to provide the highest output and value for its people, clients, and society. Their strategy is data-driven, involves client collaboration, and aligns with the firm's broader business objectives. Sherman is committed to taking action to provide opportunities for every individual to thrive and experience success and foster inclusive work environments where people feel valued, engaged, and eager to contribute to the success of their clients. The firm encourages its lawyers and business services professionals to bring their authentic selves of different cultures, ethnicities, orientations, experiences, beliefs, and more to work and leverage their unique viewpoints to advise clients on the most sophisticated legal matters. Brian and I thank all of you, our listeners, for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to our next sessions with you. Stay tuned and be safe.